Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Jack from Stockholm. <laughs> and this is Buildface. So what have you been working on? Uh, you know, just Venmo things that I can't talk about. <laughs> Any new APIs you're using or? No, I mean, we had dropped support for iOS 8. So we'd started using new stuff in 9. Layout anchors, stack views, that kind of thing. Haven't hopped on board anything iOS 10 related yet. I assume we'll get there <laughs> at some point. I mean, the, the really interesting things to me, like property animators, I won't be able to use until we completely drop iOS 9. I don't feel like writing something that closes over that on iOS 10 and does normal animations on iOS 9 because it's just not worth the time. I guess you can still like use the same animation code on both. Like, I don't know, define them as like closures or functions and that because i think you can just do like keyframe animation within a ui view property animator can you i'm not super familiar I with think, the api I, I think you can actually do pretty much all the stuff you were able to do before it's not the intended use of it but i think they did it for like backward compatibility so you would still be able to and also like because there's no other way to do keyframe animations with the new api so you would still like be able to do all your animation stuff in that block so i guess i haven't tried but i guess there might be a way to be able to do both without rewriting code but i could be wrong hmm. let me see how this works here so you just add animations so you create a property animator but that's not bound to a specific property no it just works on any of the animatable properties it works on any animatable property but also on any animation code you have in that block it's sort of like animation groups in OS X or Mac OS. Are you familiar with those? No, I'm, it's kind I'm of, not. It's like a block that takes anything that you put in there and animates it. Anything that's layer-backed. Is that an app kit wrapper around core animation transactions? I think so. I, I'm, oh, okay. I might be wrong, but I, that's, that's to me how, how it, it's supposed to work. Okay. So I guess this is really just moving away from a class method on UIView and giving you an instance of something that can hang around, but it, it essentially is set up and run the same way. So you give it a duration, a curve and animations, and then you just call a method. I think, yeah, I think hmm. you, you just start animation after that or a similar method. Got it. Got it. I think the, okay. the really cool part, though, is that you can you can do a lot of cool things you couldn't do before. Like you can scrub the animation and reverse it. And well, you could reverse it before, but it's a lot easier to do that now. I mean, you could do that with core animation, though, right? Yeah, yeah, you, totally. With the with the media timing, you just set the speed to zero and start playing with the time offset. But but this is, this makes it better and easier to use. I saw something mentioned that you're, you should be able to connect these two gestures because I, I thought the whole point of this was to make interactive transitions easier. Yeah. Do you know how that works? Yeah, kind of. I watched the session where they talked about that. To be honest, I don't remember exactly how it works just because the API for transition and view controllers is so convoluted that I just lost track because it's still convoluted. 
either you, you conform to a protocol or you pass it the animator, I don't remember, but you can actually interact with that API and you get a lot of stuff for free, like scrubbing. And you can also like switch between user driven and automatic, but I don't remember exactly how it's implemented just because whenever, <laughs> whenever I, I start like looking at the animated transition and stuff, my head spins a lot. Yeah, the thing I'm most interested in is an interactive transition using a pan gesture recognizer that when you end that gesture, I want to be able to take that velocity and feed it into the animation to get this transition to finish fluidly. I think it does that. I might be wrong, but I had the impression that it sort of takes the velocity from user input and adds it to to the animation if you if you lift your your finger. But I I, I might be wrong but i had the impression that it does that for you at any rate i think it's it makes it a lot easier to do that sort of stuff i can't find it interesting i need to take a closer look at it but yeah have you worked with custom animated transitions before you know i don't think that i've done an interactive one, one. okay just statically animating transitions but no no interactive ones but yeah. I, i've heard that it, it's a mess yeah they have fairly similar apis except when you want to be interactive you have to implement a couple more methods yeah i'm still not clear how this plays together because i know that the whole point of the uh, ui percent driven interactive transition controller i probably butchered that name <laughs> it does what we're talking about using the media timing on the layers of the views that you're transitioning between. And so when it's percent driven and you're updating that like percent complete, all that's doing is turning around and calculating the right offset for that layer. Okay. And the speed has already been set to zero when the transition begins. And so the model layer, the views have already transitioned. All you're doing then is just scrubbing through the animation. Yeah. Are you talking about what existed before? Yeah, that's uh, that's what that concrete implementation of the interactive transitioning protocol does. That percent driven, you just give it a value between zero and one. You're like, here's where I'm at based on my gesture, and you're calculating yeah. that, and it's actually managing the layers. Yeah, it's it's weird. It seems like we have a bunch of pieces here to make this easier, but it's still not clear how any of it hangs together. When I watched the session, it made sense, but I forgot it now because I haven't used it so. Yeah, but I was kind of disappointed that they haven't made that animated transition in API any better. It, it could be that it's actually good, but the names they have are terrible. But let's just say that. Like, they sound similar, and they're all abstract. And when I look at those protocols, I, don't, I just don't know which should do what. I did the static one, too. I haven't done any gesture driven ones but even those i had to draw like a sort of like a schematic to know what needs to implement what and in what order mm -hmm. i feel it's not intuitive or at least it's not easy to use yeah I, I think all the protocols makes you think that you need separate types implementing them but that's really not the case typically what i've done is the view controller that i'm going to present 
I set it up to be its own transitioning delegate. And then just to start implement the animated transitioning methods, which is just the duration and perform animations. And then as it gets more and more complicated, you know, pull it out into new objects. But there are a lot of protocols in that system that were introduced in iOS seven, but you're not really supposed, it's recommended that you don't use most of them, the transitioning context and the transitioning coordinator. Those are protocols. So I think that Apple can swap out implementations in UI kit, but I've only seen one or two examples of someone actually implementing those themselves. There's a lot of methods that you have to implement and it's not immediately clear how you would implement those things. But I, I have gone down that road trying to find a way to do a sort of like one-to-one transition between child view controllers. And I still haven't figured out a clean way of doing this. Hmm. Like I don't want to go from the container to something else. I want to animate between my children either interactively or with a custom animation. And I know they have the, you know, the transition from view controller to view controller, but you don't have a lot of control over what's actually happening to the child views there. So it's not exactly what I want. Okay. What sort of UI is this? So one pattern that I'm sold on now is that the root view controller in an application, the actual root view controller on your apps window, it should always be one view controller. Okay. And, you know, it's common in an app that like when you're signed in, you're looking at this, at this UI, when you're signed out, you're looking at this UI. Yeah. For example, in what I'm working on, everything that you would think of as the signed in portion of the app, it requires an account object to initialize almost every view controller in there. And it, it makes sure that you can't get into a state where you're showing something on screen while you're signed out that shouldn't be there while you're signed out. It you know statically guarantees that if you're here, there's an account and the account object is valid. And if at any point that account object goes away because you've signed out, that single root view controller just tears down that whole sort of signed in child view controller hierarchy yeah. and just replaces it with the signed out one. Interesting. So that works nicely and it and it gives you a place to do, you know, cool transitions between the signed in and the signed out state. Yeah. But you're sort of handling it all manually. And it feels like I should be able to use this transitioning system because it's all protocol based and it's all really flexible. I should be able to use this to do complex animations between children. But it's not meant for that. It's meant to just allow you to customize presentations and with yeah. these stock containers, you know, customize, you can customize switching tabs in a tab bar controller. Who would do that? <laughs> I would never. Yeah. That's the, weird. I, I, I didn't know this, this was possible. Yeah. I think it's really nice because you just know that if you're in a sort of signed in view controller, there's no ambiguity. There's no optional account floating around. Like you have an account object, you use that. Yeah, no, I meant the tab bar thing you mentioned. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. UI navigation controller and UI tab bar controller delegate both have methods to return something that conforms to UI view controller animated transitioning. And it lets you customize the transition between yeah. view controllers. I think the reason why these APIs don't exist is that Apple is not using them. Like the way they're using animated transitioning are for like presenting stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. Yeah. And I know that under the hood, there is a concrete implementation of that transitioning context. That's like, I think it's called UI one-to-one view controller transitioning context, No, but I can't seem to use it. 
Interesting thing is like a lot of what is new in UIKit this year seems to be taking things that were just like class-based methods and turning them into proper objects. So the obviously the animator, the property animator is a good example. Yeah. There's something else I was just scrolling through here. What else did they add? The uh, image renderers. Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, instead of just being <laughs> like free functions that go from, you know, like data to a JPEG or a PNG. Oh, you're talking about uh, image with PNG representation? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I didn't actually know they, they updated those. I hate those. <laughs> right. So now you have UI graphics image renderer and you initialize it with a bounds or size and a format. And the format is the output format that you want. And then it's just a bunch of methods that take a closure. And in that closure, you get an image renderer context. And at some point, I'm not clear how you get the image out. I think you get it from the context. So you... Uh, you just like draw stuff within that closure? Mm, unclear. I'm looking at the context. Does it now. take NS data anywhere or data? Let's see. Because if if it's just a closure where you draw stuff, I had a library to do that for a very long time. <laughs> but I think it's more than that, or at least I hope it's more than that. Yeah, it's kind of unclear. So image renderer has three methods on it, and they all take this closure and the. The argument is called actions, and it goes from an image renderer context to void. There's one called image, there's JPEG data, and that one takes a compression quality, and then there's PNG data. Okay. But if you go look at the actual context object, the only method on it is current image. Hmm. What type is that? UI graphics image renderer context. Oh, it inherits from UI graphics renderer context. Oh, here it goes. Oh, this is awesome. This is just a higher level core graphics context. Oh, nice. So you can just, you can draw stuff. Yep. The graphics renderer context has properties, CG context and format, and it has instance methods, clip, fill, fill with blend mode, stroke and stroke with blend mode. So that's what the actions are. So you create a renderer, you specify your format, you ask either for an image, JPEG data or PNG data. And then in this block, you get this context that you can, you know, draw to fill stroke and then you finally just get the image out. That's nice. I kind yeah. of had it hacked together something to do that in a more old school way. But it, to have it natively is better and also less stuff for me to maintain. So that's cool. Yeah. Speaking of core graphics, I'm kind of happy with the uh, changes they made to the API. Uh, you mean just the way that C APIs can be bridged into Swift? Yes, but more like now you do context. So for instance, fill in a context is now a a method on an instance of CG context ref. So you don't do like CG context ref fill. You just call your context instance and dot, and then you call the fill method. Mm. So they're no longer freestanding functions, which makes things a little bit nice to look at. I was kind of hoping for more, but I'm not complaining to at least get this for now. Yeah, I'm not clear if that's an updated API or if that is like new annotations that LLVM supports so that you could annotate oh. C methods so that when they get someone there, you know, pulled in to Swift, they are represented in a different way. But I'm not sure how you would go from free function that takes an argument and then other arguments to use on that object to yeah. like an object that hmm, 
Interesting. Yeah, I I saw that talk where they talk about like the new bridging stuff in Swift three, and this didn't feel like it's one of them, but. I don't know. I could be wrong. As you said, it's a free function, so I don't see how you can make that to be a an instance method of another object. But I don't know. Yeah. I think regardless, it makes core graphics code nicer to look at. Oh yeah, for sure. I kind of I was hoping for a kind of like an overhaul of the API. I wanted something more declarative less like give me coordinates of point to move to and more like describe what you're trying to do i kind of i spiked i like a thing that kind of is close to what i'm describing where if you want to draw like a shape you just draw it relatively to your current point so if you want to move the line up say 50 points then you you just say that instead of having to do the math to figure out Where's your next point? Because mm. the, the problem with that approach is that as soon as you change the origin, all of your math becomes... Like if you hard code the values of the points, you have to redo everything. I'm guessing they can't change the API for backwards compatibility reasons, right? I mean, yes. I, I've always thought of the core graphics code as the code version of a Photoshop action. Right. Where you just apply a bunch of steps in order, and then at the end you have a thing. And, you know, with the new API, it stands to reason that you can now extend CG context ref to do all the things that you want, right? Right, definitely. But I kind of, well, I think I was mostly talking about like uh, syntax sugar, not really changing the the way the API works. But I think they're not interested in, in that. And they would rather have like other people implement their own helpers. I mean, at that point, why why not use core animation? In what scenario do you need to be using core graphics, but you still want to be able to do high-level drawing? I guess whenever you don't want to animate stuff. Core graphics would still be more performant? No, not necessarily. In some cases, you just want to, you know, like you want to do it in RawRect instead of doing it with layers and stuff. It's not very common, but it is common to a certain degree. So, for instance, I made this speedometer, and all the static parts are just drawn in core graphics, and all the animated parts are layers. Interesting. I'm not sure I see what that gets you. But maybe it's just because I find the core graphics code really hard to follow because it's procedural. Yeah. Like we mentioned before. It's just way too easy to make to subclass CA layer and then make a view that's backed by that layer for really static things. You rasterize it, and you're kind of just done. But what if the view has both static parts and moving parts? I guess you can have multiple layers, but... Yeah, and also you just kind of keep composing your view to be bigger and bigger. Yeah, that's a fair point. You were talking about collection view. I heard you mentioned prefetching, which yes, I, would I just... kind of understand what that is, but okay. not how it applies to table view. But if you have a better understanding. Is it also supported on table view? Yeah, there is a table view version. Okay. They glossed over it in the session. They mostly talked about collection view. Yeah, collection view makes sense. Because as you're, as you're scrolling up, you might have, you know, five cells that are all about to be displayed at one time. Right. It makes sense for the system to intelligently try to draw those things in advance and, like, stagger their drawing 
before they all come on screen at once. And so you're not getting the cost of having to draw five cells at, you know, sort of in the time that it would take to draw a frame. So you don't drop frames and it can like amortize that cost by just starting the whole process earlier. But I don't get how that applies to table views. I guess there are two parts in this change. The first one is the stuff that the OS will do by default, which is just described, like preparing cells earlier than before. And also like preparing them one at a time instead of uh, five at a time in, in case there are, there are like five items in a single row. And there's the other stuff where you have um, the UI collection view prefetching data source or data, no, no, sorry, something that has these keywords in some order, which you implement and you can do whatever you want for an array of uh, index paths. So I'm assuming that the typical case there would be kicking off some sort of like asynchronous task to go fetch, you know, avatars in a list Yep. so that by the time the cell is about ready to be displayed, you realistically should be close to having that data if you don't already. Absolutely. I think it's a big deal. Have you worked on before on any UI that shows a bunch of images in a collection view? Yes. It's a nightmare. In that it takes too long to draw all the images well between if especially if they're remote between fetching them caching them drawing them it's just you have to really spend a lot of time optimizing your code mm-hmm. and with this i feel like it makes things a lot easier because i could send at least the network requests way before the image is displayed and by the time it is going to be displayed, I can show it. In fact, I can even do crazier stuff. Like I built this library called Image Scout that gets you the um, size and format of an image, of a remote image. So what I can do is actually prefetch these the sizes only and use those dimensions to calculate the layout of those images. So you would have sort of like a waterfall layout for remote images, which was possible before, but extremely hard to do. That's really interesting. How does that work? Is is all that information encoded in just like the first few bytes of the image or something? Depends on the format. Okay. Like PNG and bitmap, they have that in the, yeah, in the, in the header of the image, but not JPEG. JPEG is a lot trickier. But it's basically just traversing the data and looking for the the right bytes. Mm-hmm. I just ported that code to Swift 3 a couple of weeks ago. I had some hiccups, but I got it to work. Doesn't that result in you making twice the number of network calls, though? Currently, yes, but it's very easy to fix. And I actually, I was planning to add that to, to the library I'm working on, is that you can actually just pass a flag to continue downloading or to stop downloading. So currently I just stop downloading when I get all the data. And as soon as I add that, it would be able to have like two callbacks. So the first one, when you get the actual like uh, size and whatnot, the metadata and the second callback, when you get the full image, Mm -hmm. it's super easy to implement. I just didn't get to do it yet, but I just think it's really amazing that now I can do really like a like a proper waterfall sort of like layout like pinterest style with remote images without having the server tell me how big or small the image is so the original problem was that you have a collection view you're loading a bunch of images 
as you're scrolling and you don't have the sizes up front. So in addition to having to copy all the image data and draw it, say with UI image view, you're also having to do a lot of continual layout passes. Is that correct? Before, yes. But even like that, it wasn't guaranteed that you can do it because you have to wait for the image to download. And also most of the time you want to show it as soon as you get it. So yes, you can trigger another layout pass, but sometimes that's going to make the UI a bit feel sluggish. So you just show it as, with a default size and you you set it to aspect fill. And then on a second pass, then you you have the size, so you fix it. But it just resulted in a weird like situations where if you scroll fast, you will get some images in certain sizes and then they, they change size when you scroll back again. It just wasn't very clean and also the implementation was kind of a nightmare. With prefetching, I think this would be extremely easy because you could just do whatever you want to do, prepare all the data you need for the layout. And as soon as you get there, you have everything you need to draw the cell, the you know, to calculate the position of each image and like dimensions and all of that. Got it. So not too much has changed. It's just that the system is calling your delegator data source earlier. Not yes that, but also the other method that you have now. It's I had the name in front of me a while ago, but I forgot. UI collection view prefetching sor- data source or something, which is different from the other data source. So you can put it in a separate object that conforms to that protocol. Okay, is that what I'm he meant? I think so. Okay, oh, yeah. prefetch prefetch items at index path. Yes. So. Th- th- it must be doing something more complicated than just eagerly calling no. the delegator the data source, right? I mean, yes. is it like is, is it in response to like what else the user is doing? Like, yes, if exactly. They're scrolling really fast, or if they're scrolling slowly. If they're scrolling fast, it doesn't actually get cold. Got it. Only oh, because what, yeah. Okay. So, so the system is kind of like looking at how you're scrolling, what's coming up, the index paths that it thinks might end up on screen. It would call them for that, but otherwise, no. Yes, exactly. They also mentioned something about being smart. So if the user is idle, it might actually call without even the user being like scrolling. I hope I got this right because this is what I kind of remembered from how they they said it. They might have been talking about the uh, automatic part of this, which you get for free. But I I might have confused that with the other one. But I think it's for both where... It's kind of smart. So if the user is just sitting there and there's like free resources, it's going to call that method to prepare for the next 10 cells. Got it. So for example, you have like a thousand items in a table view and there's a bunch of avatars you have to go fetch and you're just sitting there not scrolling. It might call ahead for the next yeah. 50 and let you start go going to download those images. So they're ready. Yeah, That's pretty cool. That's 100%. I'm 100% sure about that being the case for the stuff you get by default for free and kind of like 60, 70% sure about it being for the stuff that you can do manually as well. But got it. Got it. So, so the stuff that's changed in the normal data source, the like amortization of like calling those methods like in a collection view so that they're not all like hitting the CPU at once for like layout or drawing or whatever. Right. That you get for free just by recompiling. Exactly. Against UIKit 10. But yep. but this, you actually have to implement the new data source. Interesting. Yeah. Do you like collection view? I never use it. Mostly I don't have a use for it. Okay. 
rarely. I don't probably do as much iOS as you do, but I feel like I rarely use table views on the things that I've been working on. <laughs> yeah, I in what I'm working on, there's just not anything complex enough to require a collection view. I, I can think of maybe one or two in the code base. Yeah. On last week's show, we talked about something where my coworker had started implementing something as a collection view. And we actually went back and implemented it with a stack view and a replicator layer because yeah. we wanted in a sort of infinite carousel. For like being animated, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's looping endlessly. That ended up working out really well. Yeah. Aside from an image gallery, I can't think of when I would use a collection view. Yeah, I guess it depends on the kind of app you're working on. I feel like collection views can be adapted to a lot of like UI patterns. So not only images, but like also like text or I think the app store uses a lot of collection views. On the Mac or on no, iOS? I think on iOS. I think on the mm. Mac is a web view. <laughs> I thought it was a web view on iOS as well. Really? I think so. I, I It's actually fairly easy to check now with the accessibility inspector. Wait, what do you mean? Is that new? Yeah, they added this thing to Xcode where you can inspect the accessibility of iOS and Mac apps. Of any iOS app? Yes, any. I think you can... I haven't actually... Yeah, I think you can do it, uh, any iOS app because you select the device... And it will just allow you to inspect whatever is on the screen. It didn't work for me on the first beta with a device. Maybe I had something wrong in the setup, but it works for Mac. So I can inspect any Mac app for like accessibility stuff. Do you only get the accessibility data or do you also get to see the view hierarchy? You see the accessibility view hierarchy, which is slightly different, but most of the time it it maps one to one. Well, I guess it maps one-to-one if they implemented some accessibility features. Actually, I don't know. But you can totally see if it's a web view or not, I think. Yeah, I thought it was because... Do you know about this like hidden shortcut in the App Store to blow out the cache? No. If you tap any of the tab bar items 10 times, everything reloads. What? <laughs> it gets like a hard reload. So this is why I assumed that pretty much all of it was a web view. Really? I don't know. I don't feel like it's a web view. It feels very, very uh, responsive. It could be using the same sort of JavaScript web components in a native app that Apple Music uses. If you decompile Fuse UI and you look in there, and there's, there's a lot of references to like a JS registry. And so I think there's a lot of web-like components in it, even though it is a native app. Interesting. Well, that makes sense because like you can do a lot of stuff now with JavaScript in your apps. That's cool and all, but we don't talk about JavaScript on this show. Yeah, That's I a, know. It's a bad word. Yep. Sorry. I just <laughs> broke the rule. So since this ended up being a show about UIKit, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I thought at some point you were, you started like learning Sketch. How is that going? Oh, poorly. <laughs> I haven't really touched it. I wanted to get better because all of my skills are still in Photoshop and I'm sure those skills aren't even that good anymore, but the entire world has moved to sketch and has left me behind and I don't know what I'm doing. Honestly, I don't think you should, you should really care about where, what people are using. If you're good with Photoshop, stick to that. Well, well I mean that I don't get PSDs from designers anymore. Oh, I get sketch files. I see. 
So I, I do kind of have to learn how to do it. Like if I'm going to slice it up. Why do you have to do that work? It's rare, but you know, sometimes I need to like jump in there and I'm just, it's almost faster for me to pull the assets out in all the sizes that I need. And I know enough sketch to do that. Yeah. Well, I guess in that case, you're not left with much choice. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a good tool. I would like to learn it. I like the templates. It's fairly straightforward compared to Photoshop. Yeah, but I was really good with Photoshop. <laughs> like like to the point where like I like rarely using the mouse. Yeah. Except for, you know, like dragging out like shapes and stuff, but I'm definitely not that proficient. I made the transition pretty nicely because I was never big on Photoshop. I was more of a illustrator guy and I found it easier to transition from Illustrator to Sketch hmm. than from Photoshop to Sketch. Yeah, Illustrator was always very confusing because it was like Photoshop, but just slightly different and confusing. Yeah. No, I think I use Sketch for most of the stuff I do nowadays. It's limited, but it's like sometimes those limitations actually make it nice to use in the sense that you don't have a lot of stuff to mess up, really. Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess just do it, really. Like you don't need really to spend time to learn it. Just wait until the time comes for you to slice something and just dive in and try to do it. I think you won't have any issues with it. Yeah, I don't get to do too much design anymore, but I'll mess with it. Do you have any side projects? No, not right is, now. Is that intentional? Yes. <laughs> Can I ask why? I feel like I just do too much at a computer during the week and that I need to not do it during the weekend to stay, you know, sharp during the week and not get burned out. That's interesting because I do the opposite exactly for the same reason. I need to sort of like keep doing stuff on the side to not get burnt out on the sometimes when I'm doing something I'm not extremely into. Mm -hmm. Then I have to do this like, you know, experimental stuff or like learning this new API or just doing this crazy little thing on the side. To me, it keeps me motivated to actually keep doing this sort of work. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think I achieved the same thing by reading. I read a lot about new things. I don't necessarily go to the computer and try to implement them. Although, you know, once we get closer to iOS 10 coming out, I will mess around with the new APIs just so I have some understanding of them because I know that that will come up at some point. And I know someone will say, like, how should I do this? And if I at least have some awareness of UIKit, I can at least be helpful and like point people in the right direction. Yeah, that, that makes sense. What have you been really excited about lately? iOS 10 wise? No, just in general in programming. Still architecture and Swift and still searching for like sort of like one right way to write UI kit apps in, in Swift. The Holy Grail. And have it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and have it be easy to follow and easy to maintain and not terrible to write. Honestly, I gave up on that. <laughs> I think it's still doable. It is doable. I just don't think I need to really try hard because I feel like the harder I try, the worse the outcome is. Or not worse, but it seems great the, the moment I'm doing it. But like two months later, I look at it and, like, and I think it's just a mess anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely been there. I've, I've done that and I've I think I'm on the other side of it now where I've, I'm able to identify when I'm over-engineering and when I'm under-engineering and not 
overly abstracting things too early. I think I'm doing a much better job of, of identifying earlier when I'm going down the wrong path and leading to code that's going to suck to look at later. Yep. You have grown so, up. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I think it's uh, probably a good time to wrap up. Yeah. Show notes for this episode will be available at buildphase.fm. And we'd always like to hear from you. So email us at hosts at buildphase.fm or on Twitter at buildphase. And we always appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. Cool. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Good show. <laughs>